heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm today. And we will be talking about the questions everyone's asking. What about the COVID vaccines? How effective are they? How safe are they? What are the risks that we know? And who should consider the vaccine? If you've had COVID or have antibodies already, should you try the vaccine? Should you take it or not? We'll also briefly talk about the success with early home-based treatment for COVID with existing medications and what some of the current data has been showing on that. And today's guest, I'm very privileged to have with us Dr. Peter McCullough. Dr. McCullough is a cardiologist, epidemiologist, and internal medicine specialist in Dallas, Texas. He has been a world leader in the treatment for COVID-19 and currently spearheads a consortium of over 300 doctors working closely together, sharing data and information and research and clinical approaches. He is a physician who has treated several hundred COVID patients personally and consulted in the care for hundreds more patients working with other doctors on the front line In fact, Dr. McCullough was someone who consulted with me to guide me in treatment of some of my seriously ill patients, and we've been successful at keeping them at home and out of the hospital. Dr. McCullough was also the expert witness testifying on November 29th, 2020, on early home-based treatment before the Senate Oversight Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, chaired by Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. So this has been a real privilege, not only to work personally with Dr. McCullough and his assistance with my patients, but also as part of the team of people at the national and international level who have been trying to break through and help people understand the home-based treatment options. And I'm particularly pleased that Dr. McCullough is going to be addressing today some of the questions that come up daily in my practice with patients who are concerned about the vaccines and have questions about it. So Dr. McCullough, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Dr. Vliet, thanks for having me on the program. You are so welcome. I I think it's really important. I want to spend most of our time today talking more about the vaccines. But before we do that, I think it's important for our listeners to have a basic framework about Tell us a little bit about our immune response and the difference between natural immunity and then immunity that one is that is conferred by a vaccine, for example. There's a lot of discussion about herd immunity. What is it? What does it mean? How do you get it? I just would like for you to help our listeners kind of have a immunity 101 discussion to understand more about this because the media is so misleading in the way that it's presented. 
Well, immunity is the way that the human body can help defend against uh, invaders, whether they be uh, bacteria, uh, viruses, parasites, or, or other organisms. And the listeners are probably familiar with some of our successful manipulations of immunity. For instance, uh, a, uh, a bacteria, a Clostridium tetani or tetanus, that's a bacteria we can get a tetanus booster every 10 years and have immunity against a serious tetanus infection. That's a very useful thing to do. Um, for viruses, it's tricky. There are some uh, viruses where the natural immunity uh, really uh, gives uh, everything that we need to have. So for instance, uh, those adults who are older remember having mumps. Once they have mumps, they have permanent immunity to mumps. You can't get a second case of mumps later on in life. Uh, that's it's just simply not uh, possible. Other viruses uh, uh, gain access to the body and stay there permanently. And so one of them uh, is what's called the varicella zoster virus or the chickenpox virus. So as children, we can get chickenpox and then later on, we can end up getting uh, shingles. And so there, there is a vaccine against shingles, but the virus is already in the body. And so the vaccine just ramps up the immune defense against the shingles uh, virus. Some vaccines are completely durable. And the example is healthcare workers can get a hepatitis B vaccine and it protects them against hepatitis B. But for a whole range of viruses that are out there, uh, we don't have uh, effective vaccines. A good example is AIDS. Uh, a good example is hepatitis C. There's no vaccine against hepatitis C. No, there are no vaccines against uh, the common cold, despite all these uh, attempts. So, uh, and we have vaccines obviously against influenza, but they're only partially effective. Uh, one statistic I saw recently is that of 90% of people who get the flu, actually clinically have the flu, 90% um, of them have been vaccinated against the flu. So it just gives you uh, a reference point. So you know, fast forward to the COVID-19 pandemic, and we have a whole myriad of questions regarding uh, immunity. Uh, what we know here is that our host cells uh, defend against the virus. There are cell-based immunity through what's called uh, toll-like receptors, uh, other cell surface receptors that can defend against the virus. Uh, the virus, uh, because it is damaging to the body, it evokes a natural antibody response. That's a B cell and plasma cell response against the virus. But the antibodies that are produced against the virus are very transient. They do spike up and they last a few months, uh, but they all, in each and every case, those antibodies go away. Uh, so we, we have an idea now with COVID-19 uh, that the antibodies can help identify some people who've had an infection. About 20% of people, by the way, who have a bona fide COVID infection have no, no measurable antibodies. So they're not perfect. Uh, they do spike up, they can identify a prior infection, and then they go back to undetectable levels. With the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, it's completely uh, dependent on the antibody uh, generation. And, and it was known in May that uh, vaccination attempts can cause very high levels of antibodies and then have those antibodies uh, go back down. It's also been shown with the vaccines that they can evoke a cellular-based immunity, uh, but there's great uncertainty regarding many aspects of the vaccine. So the cellular-based immunity, 
would be something that I think people may not understand. Could you elaborate a little bit on that and how the vaccine response is different from our natural response with regard to that? Well, one way to think about natural immunity is think about the entire virus. So the listeners are now familiar with the cartoon of the virus, which looks like a big beach ball with spikes sticking out of it. Well, the spikes sticking out of it are called the spike protein. That spike protein itself causes a lot of damage to cells. It allows entry into cells through what's called the ACE2 receptor and the Tempris receptor. Um, But the spike protein itself also causes red blood cells to stick together and platelets. It causes damage to the uh, blood cells uh, in the lining of the blood vessels. It makes sense. It's almost like a a sprickly, uh, a a spiky little ball that you can pick up out in a West Texas uh, farmland on on your pants. Now, the ball part of the virus, the beach ball, that's called the nucleocapsid. So when a virus invades the human body, the natural immunity is uh, against the spike protein, against the nucleocapsid, against uh, all the enzymes that are used, uh, including what's called RNA-dependent polymerase, uh, a whole bunch of other uh, proteins that are in the nucleocapsid. So a natural immunity is going to be um, very comprehensive. And what we've learned about natural immunity is that it's quite durable. Now, in the world uh, to date, we are at 114 million cases of COVID-19. Unfortunately, we've had 2.5 million deaths, but through 114 million people in the world who've had it, there have been uh, some suggestions that there could be a a, uh, repeat infection. And this is uh, something that's put up in the media, uh, giving great fear to people with the idea that they've already had COVID-19 once, they'd be scared to death to have it again. It was tough to be hospitalized and on the ventilator, but if you were lucky enough to survive, could you imagine getting it again? And in each and every one of these cases, I've carefully reviewed them. I think each and every case is a misinterpretation of what's going on. The most recent one was published. The first author is Zuckman, Z-U-C-M-A-N. And it's, the title of the paper is called Severe Reinfection with the South African Variant 5021Y.V2, a case report. And this came from France. Well, when they describe the case, uh, it is a man who, um, a 58-year-old man who in September had a very brief illness Uh, where he was uh, nasal PCR positive, and it said his symptoms resolved within a few days. And he had background asthma, he tested negative. Well, let me tell you, these these PCR tests for SARS now are run at such cycle thresholds, they pick up all kinds of uh, strands of RNA of different coronaviruses. And unless somebody has the bona fide COVID syndrome, where they have easily, uh, you know, two weeks or more of illness and fever, and the characteristic features, it's not a bona fide case. So in September, he never had COVID-19. And then uh, sure enough, in January, he does get COVID-19 and he has a South African variant and he requires hospitalization. The problem with this paper, like all the others so far, and there's been about 45 of these cases in the literature, not a single one stands up to scrutiny. So what the listeners need to understand is that natural immunity with COVID-19 is both complete and durable, 
and there are many strains or variants of the virus. Dr. Hazen in California has shown it throughout the pandemic that there are dozens and dozens of variants. They're not new. How we identify a variant is full exomic sequencing of the entire genome of the virus. The only way to do that is through different body fluids. Dr. Hazen's lab actually does it in stool. So believe it or not, the virus comes out intact in the stool and it can be, uh, it can be fully sequenced. And so the variants are um, uh, something that when an individual has the natural immunity, they are of no concern. And I am extremely convinced that those who've had the natural COVID infection have natural immunity, that it's both complete and durable. And people say, well, how long is durable? Well, it's as durable as we, as long as the pandemic has gone on. We're now in a year into the pandemic and there have been no credible double cases in, in okay. 100 million. That, that is extremely important. And I, I really want to pull out two key points that you made and reiterate that for our listeners, because I think they are so misinformed by the media on this very point that the natural immunity being exposed to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 virus and the illness COVID-19 and having the illness and developing antibodies as a result of being sick gives you a, an immune response to the nuclear capsid, the ball of the virus and the spike protein that causes so much damage and it's durable, and it protects you against strains that emerge. You were saying it's complete, durable, and many strains of viruses. So I just want our listeners to realize how beneficial our natural immunity is. Well, let's talk about how that compares with the vaccine. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, let me just add to that. So the natural immunity is complete and durable and it cannot be improved upon with vaccination. So if the natural immunity is complete and durable and it's fundamentally impossible to get a second case, it cannot be improved upon with a vaccine. And one of the most common questions I have with the patient is a doctor, I had COVID-19 and now my employer uh, or my workplace or uh, you know, a travel agency or, or the next um, organization is saying I need to get the vaccine. Do I really need it? And it would be the same answer as um, as a patient who has durable immunity from some, one of the other illnesses that I mentioned. The apps, the 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 the, the response is absolutely not. That that the vaccine can only offer harms. It can offer no benefit in that scenario. So this is very very important for uh, in the United States as an example for the individuals in the United States. We've had 29 million cases of COVID-19. We've had another 180 million suspected COVID-19 cases, and we just can't, patients couldn't get the test. For that broad group of over 210 million individuals, the COVID-19 vaccine should not be administered. In fact, the FDA strictly excluded those patients from clinical trials. Well, and I think that's a critical point because I'm running into patients being told that, well, yes, you had COVID, but you still have to get the vaccine. And not only what you just said about the vaccine would not offer any additional benefit, but the harms that it can offer. 
I think we need to educate our listeners to exactly what are the risks of getting the vaccine if you already have had COVID and recovered from it, or if you are exposed to COVID and have antibodies, and now you get the vaccine triggering another response. Could you talk about that as well? And then we'll get into the FDA and why they excluded them and what that means. Well, we should probably um, talk about the different types of vaccines first. So in December, we had the uh, messenger RNA vaccines come out. And the messenger RNA vaccines is basically giving a small synthesized strand of RNA in a liposome uh, uh, capsule that has polyethylene glycol. And that's a, a substance that's used in antifreeze. And uh, this messenger RNA packaged in the, the liposome and the polyethylene glycol is the backbone of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And so the, the first point to be made there is the vaccines uh, uh, through FDA regulations must have 24 months of observed safety uh, and efficacy before they can be approved. And what happened in September of this year is the FDA in concert with the uh, National Institutes of Health, CDC, and the uh, Operation Warp Speed and the vac vaccine manufacturers, they changed that 24 months to two months. So uh, with the vaccine, uh, once it became known that, that uh, COVID was gonna be amenable to vaccine in May, the National Institutes of Health dropped uh, its early treatment trials. It dropped most of its uh, uh, therapy efforts or put them on a slow track. And they did use warp speed to uh, rapidly push forward the development of the vaccine. In fact, in, um, in my area, there were radio advertisements. Uh, it was wild enthusiasm for signing up for the vaccine. And so the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine trials programs rapidly um, uh, enrolled. Uh, they had radio advertising. They were uh, uh, very well subscribed by uh, doctors, by nurses and healthcare professionals. And uh, while laboratories, during that time, laboratories were experiencing 5, 10, 15, even 20% COVID positivity rates in laboratories across the United States, it was shocking that when the Pfizer and Moderna programs were presented uh, in uh, early December, that they had COVID-19 uh, positive rates in placebo of less than 1%. So immediately we knew with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, we knew that something was suspicious. Uh, how in the world could they get such a low COVID-19 rate in individuals, even in placebo? And so uh, what happened was that um, uh, 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 there was a very, very uh, low risk group that was uh, recruited. And so we're left with, even though these programs were large, they were over 20,000 patients in size. Uh, they were very large in terms of number recruited. They were very small in terms of generating data uh, in terms of who developed COVID-19. Now, both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines require two injections, uh, one uh, three weeks, the other one four weeks apart. And because it has polyethylene glycol, there is an immediate acute allergic uh, reaction. Individuals, for instance, have had, um, have had dermatologic fillers or been exposed to um, these cosmetic treatments are at higher risk. Patients who have prior polyethylene glycol allergies and those individuals 
who um, in general have severe reactions to vaccines, uh, the FDA and the European Medicines Agency quickly uh, announced that they should be excluded because initially they were all included and there were some early anaphylactic deaths. In fact, in the very first week of mass vaccination, there were hospitalizations and death. Um, now we fast forward, we have had December, January, and now February with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And I am checking the Center for Disease Control um, Vaccine uh, Adverse Event Reporting System right now on my computer. Uh, today's February 28th, 2021. And shockingly, we are at 810 vaccine reported deaths. 810. So let me- That's staggering. Let me give you some background. Um, if the estimates are we're at uh, 20 or 30 million individuals fully vaccinated in the United States, and that's probably the number. Uh, last year, we vaccinated 194 million patients with the flu vaccine, 194 million. And there were 23 vaccine reported deaths. Now, vaccine reported deaths is when a vaccine is administered and somebody has a sufficient concern to go on the website and report it. And so um, it can happen. Now, it may be true, true, and unrelated that they died of other things, but somebody had the concern. The fact that somebody had the concern in 810 cases out of 30 million people vaccinated where they died. Uh, and because we're only a, a, you know, a few months into this, the vast majority of deaths occurred within a matter of days or a few weeks of administration of the vaccine. This is shocking. If we had five deaths due to a drug, um, that drug would have a black box warning. If we probably had 50 cases of unexplained death, the drug would be off the market. And here we are at 810 deaths. There's no mention of this in the media. There's no mention by the FDA, CDC, or other agencies. There's no independent adjudication panel to review these to see if they're causally related, um, nor is there any risk mitigation plan. And a risk mitigation plan would be to try to identify who's at risk for consenting to this voluntary vaccine and then dying. There's no attempts for any of these things. And so this is a gross um, abrogation of uh, uh, responsibility um, at the highest levels in our country right now. We've never seen this gross negligence with respect to administration of what really is an investigational product that patients sign up for without a doctor's approval. Well, and not only without a doctor's approval, which is shocking in itself given the risk, but also many patients that I've talked to who were encouraged to take it and I didn't have a chance to talk with them ahead of time, they didn't call to tell me that they were going to do it, have had no informed consent whatsoever. And this has been, this is still an investigational experimental biological agent and the patients are normally required to be given informed consent before being entered into a clinical trial, which is essentially what they're doing. Correct. Well, it, it's um, the, I've read the cons consent carefully. It doesn't mention clinical trial. It simply mentions that the products uh, have not gone through the full FDA approved approval process, that they're not FDA approved, that, they have an emergency use authorization. They are considered investigational or experimental and that the consent uh, indemnifies uh, the manufacturer, uh, indemnifies whoever's administering the vaccine. And th the patient does consent to the being tracked and having their information tracked. 
So um, you can imagine, so for instance, in the first week of the mass vaccination program, uh, despite being strictly excluded from clinical trials, the CDC and the FDA said it was fine to vaccinate uh, pregnant women. Uh, and we never do this. We never do this with a new product and certainly not an investigational product. And sure enough, pregnant women who uh, were not included in the trial whatsoever for safety reasons now underwent mass vaccination. And in the first 500, uh, the first uh, week, it was 500 pregnant women vaccinated. And sure enough, one of them had a stillbirth. Now, it could be true, true, and unrelated or true, true, and related, but now there's no maternal fetal help for that woman. Um, there is uh, no, there are no, rec there's no recourse here. And, uh, and this goes on and on. So the CDC and FDA completely ignored the inclusion exclusion criteria of the trials, which excluded women of childbearing potential, pregnant women, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered, and then in one of the trials program excluded patients who had positive antibodies up front. The two other programs included those who had positive antibodies, which was a small percent, and in individuals who have positive antibodies, there is absolutely no benefit of the vaccine. Well, I, I quite agree with you. And I, I would like to take this up after our, our break and talk more about the presence of COVID antibodies and what that means and what that can lead to in someone who gets the vaccine. Right now, we'll take a brief pause and we'll be back with Dr. Peter McCullough on Voice of a Nation in just a minute. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. I want to talk to you about online shopping for a moment. If you're like me, you're letting your fingers do the walking through the internet pages, right? Some of the things that bother me is that the big players in the online shopping market really don't support the ideals that I do, like law enforcement, the military, and honoring men and women who put their lives on the line. I don't think that a lot of the platforms do that, but there's a new one coming online in March. It's called shoptotheright.com, and it's pretty damn cool idea. It is all about having a shopping network that has all of the, the greatest deals. You can put your stuff on it if you're a business owner, but you can shop it because you know that A, you're going to get the best deals, and secondly, you're going to be supporting a platform that supports America. It is going to be changing the way we shop, believing that our country is, in fact, an amazing place to live. So check it out. And I think you're going to want to support it. I know that I am. ShopToTheRight.com. Fighting every day against the internet monopolies that are trying to stifle our right to free speech and freedom of assembly. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm. And we are talking today with Dr. Peter McCullough, world leader in the treatment of COVID-19, epidemiologist, cardiologist, and one of the true 
pioneers in early outpatient treatment. And we're talking today about the vaccines, the differences with the different types of vaccine that are now available, the pros and cons, risk benefits and options, and what you should be thinking about as an individual patient. What do you really need to talk with your doctor about before you jump in and get the new experimental COVID-19 vaccine? So Dr. McCullough, just before our pause, we're talking about the exclusion criteria for the clinical trials, which means for our listeners, just to say, normally speaking in medicine, when a new agent, biological agent or medication goes through a clinical trial and the criteria for the group under study is met and the data is analyzed, the drug is approved for that use and for that type of patient, the kinds of patients who were in the clinical trial. It's considered off-label or extending the use of the drug to use it for some other group of patients. And normally in medicine, we don't do that right away because we want to see what the results are going to be when we start using a new agent or medicine in a large group of people. And I think of what Dr. McCullough was talking about with the exclusion criteria, just a reminder, these were all of the groups of patients that were not tested in the clinical trials for the Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J vaccine, which we'll talk about as well. So going back to your groups of excluded patients, certainly we know that pregnant women were excluded and now we're, I'm seeing in my practice and others have reported it as well, quite a number of menstrual irregularities and complications in women of reproductive years, pregnant women with stillbirths and hypercoagulation syndromes. So there are quite a lot of concerns about that. But you mentioned some other groups. Let's talk about the group you mentioned who have been COVID recovered or COVID have COVID antibodies and why it's important to not go forward with the vaccine in those groups and the clinical trial didn't even test them. Well, keep in mind that um, with the natural COVID infection, the virus replicates for several days or maybe a week or so. And then the virus has kind of done its job and the rest of the damage to the lungs and the rest of the body is what's called cytokine storm and thrombosis. And the theory is that if one has already had COVID-19 and then gets the vaccine, the only possibility is there's, there's no chance of benefit. The only thing that can happen is to stir up what's called the cytokine storm or the thrombosis or some type of um, a blood uh, abnormality. And that was the reason why the FDA excluded them from the trials. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. I do know some uh, patients and others who felt coerced into the vaccine and they've taken it being COVID uh, recovered. And we'll just have to follow this over time in terms of kind of scattered uh, reports. Um, uh, my personal prediction is that because there's no opportunity for benefit, uh, sporadic cases of death or uh, blood abnormalities, uh, hospitalizations, sooner or later, they'll come uh, to enough recognition and hopefully break through media censorship uh, where it'll become obvious that we should not be vaccinating patients who are COVID recovered who's had, or had suspected COVID who have positive antibodies. But they, 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 we should probably turn the table and talk about the benefits of the vaccine. Uh, in the Pfizer Moderna program, I mentioned less than 1% of people got COVID in two months. That, that's 
you know, amazingly low when rates were five, 10, 15% in labs. But of those who did get COVID, let's say, let's say a hundred patients got COVID. It turned out that, you know, 90 of them were in placebo and 10% were in the vaccine arm. So the vaccine was not 100% at two months. And I can tell you, it's going to be very likely month and month that goes on that there'll be more and more patients who in fact got the vaccine and then turned around and gotten COVID. We've already heard this. So I think there's a false expectation for some reason that the vaccine's 100%. Remember I mentioned of those who get the flu, 90% have had the vaccine. So it tells you the vaccine is not 100% on this. Now, um, individuals who are younger, who have less than a 1% risk of hospitalization and death, that would be persons under 50 with no medical problems. Uh, uh, those individuals, in my view, once you're less than 1%, you can't do better than less than 1%. So I don't think there's any benefit to vaccinating under age 50 or without medical problems. Now there's a band of people over age 50 with uh, accumulating medical problems who are out doing business, uh, teachers, businessmen, salespeople, uh, restaurant workers, uh, healthcare workers who probably could benefit from the vaccine. And then when we get to the seniors, and we've heard a lot about seniors, people over age 75, those in uh, facilities, um, assisted living, uh, independent living, et cetera, they have the highest rates of COVID hospitalization and death. And, and importantly, they were not recruited into clinical trials. They weren't excluded, but they certainly weren't included. It's hard to do research in nursing homes. So what we found out in the first report came from Norway, the first group they vaccinated after healthcare workers was nursing home patients. And there were 23 vaccine deaths that occurred right away in the nursing home. Uh, and then it went on and on. And so if you go to the, um, uh, the website, the CDC website, and actually read the, narr the narratives that are being submitted, the vast majority of deaths in the United States have occurred in nursing homes. The person who submits the death report is a nursing home worker. And the typical narrative would say this, that here's a very ill, debilitated, older person. They get the vaccine. Later that night, they develop fever, chills, nausea, vomiting. The next day, found dead in bed. Uh, that would be the classic description. There's been, like I mentioned, on the CDC website, as of today, there have been uh, 810 deaths. 85% of them are in seniors. So interestingly, those who you'd think would need the vaccine the most, the most vulnerable, are also the most vulnerable to vaccine death with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. Could you comment on why you think that may be the case? Is it related to the inflammatory response in a very, in a frail, older patient with other conditions? You think it's the intense inflammatory response that's triggering the death? Well, keep in mind, that uh, COVID really ripped through our nursing homes and senior facilities early on. So many of these individuals actually may have had prior COVID and now we're just vaccinated on top of prior COVID. That, I think that's a, a real possibility. The second possibility is what you said, is that the, the vaccine evokes too uh, strong of a response. They can't handle the fever and chills. Now think about the messenger RNA vaccine. So the messenger RNA comes into all the cells in the body and all the cells temporarily get tricked into producing a spike protein. They don't produce the entire viral particle, but they produce a spike protein. The spike protein goes out, it sticks to red blood cells, it sticks to platelets, it injures vascular endothelial cells, it evokes a fever, uh, it, the injection site reaction in the arm. 
there's very high rates of developing swollen lymph nodes in the same uh, arm and up in the clavicle area. I've personally seen this. It causes so much inflammation in the arm and the adjacent breast that in women, uh, the suggestion now is they forego a mammogram for a year because it can alter mammogram changes. This vaccine is no joke. And the CDC estimates it's about 80 times as risky as the flu vaccine. To give, and that's the CDC what? estimates. 80 that's times. a staggering number. Well, it's staggering to think that, uh, that patients are signing up for this. They, um, uh, and what my experience is when a patient wants to have a vaccine, boy, you can't talk them out of it. They think it's patriotic or they think they're helping others. They line up in their cars. They're going to these mass vaccination centers. They're told to get the vaccine and go pull over to the side and wait an hour. And if, if they start, you know, gagging or gurgling or having an allergic reaction to, to, you know, scream for help. I mean, I just can't imagine that uh, here we are in the United States with, with our civil society that we're really subjugating our population to mass vaccination. I think the vaccine, probably there's a narrow band of benefit uh, and it's in that group, probably age 50 to 75, who's in a high contact uh, specialties where they themselves could uh, contract COVID or they could spread it to others if they were sick and, uh, and they could um, get severely ill. And what we know from the Pfizer Moderna vaccine is that it didn't prevent the severe cases. There was a handful of severe cases in both groups. So there was no hospitalization or death benefit, but it reduced the kind of head cold version of COVID-19. It was still a benefit. It, you know, many would say it's, you know, I, it's not that big of a deal to get a, a cold, um, but it still was a benefit. So there's a benefit to the vaccine. Uh, we, we know from the data that the benefit's probably about two months of benefit. We don't know if it's durable beyond that. And we do have these uh, safety concerns. Now let's turn our attention to the J&J &J vaccine that was just approved by the FDA yesterday, February 27th, 2021. This is not a messenger RNA vaccine. There is no polyethylene glycol involved. This is an adeno-associated virus vector. Uh, it is, a, again, a synthetic um, a piece of RNA that's inserted into this uh, vector platform, and uh, patients get a one-time injection. Now, uh, the body, again, makes the spike protein for a few days and, and forms the response to the spike protein, not to the nucleocapsid. But importantly there, um, uh, uh, safety events appeared to be much less. There were no um, severe anaphylactic uh, reactions reported uh, whatsoever. Now the vaccine was reported in the United States to be, um, I believe just under 70% uh, effective. But in my view, I think that's probably uh, an understatement. I do have the FDA briefing booklet in front of me and I'll just read to you uh, importantly. Uh, in those who received a placebo, uh, after they had been vaccinated um, 28 days, there were six cases of COVID-19 requiring hospitalization in placebo, and there were zero cases in those who received the vaccine. Now, this is a giant study. This is over 45,000 individuals and so, you know, six hospitalizations in placebo is pretty good. Some people, you know, it's way less than 1%. Some people would say, listen, I'd, I'll still rather be in the placebo and take my chances. But having said that, there was a benefit. Now, how about just cases of COVID? Those numbers were uh, 193 cases in placebo 
and 66 cases with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So, you know, it did reduce it. It was a 66% vaccine efficacy, but it's not 100%. In my view, it's kind of more believable as a, as a flu vaccine. So um, the, the J&J vaccine, again, could offer a benefit for that narrow band of individuals. I've estimated the United States, it's maybe 20 or 30 million individuals. Now, uh, we have 330 million individuals in the United States. If we add the dreamers and illegals, it will probably at 360 million. There have been experts, media experts been on that have said we need to vaccinate 320 million individuals. To me, that's stunning. That's virtually every man, woman, child, anybody you can grab, you would vaccinate. Uh, that's the biggest mass vaccination hubris. I, 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 just beyond belief. I think it's 20 to 30 million strategically at the most. And right now we're actually at about 20 or 30 million. If, if we actually had vaccinated that right band of people, not too young, not too old, at risk, um, there could be some marginal benefit to the vaccine to what's called herd immunity. We, we probably need to turn our attention uh, for the listeners to understand about herd immunity. I think that would be helpful, but just to, to reiterate that rather than pushing for vaccines in schools and college age young people, as we are hearing, you're, you're saying, as, as I have read, that that group really doesn't need the vaccine because they're not at high risk. I think experts have acknowledged that they're not at high risk. How the vaccine has been pushed on young people is that, well, you could carry it to an older person. So you should take the vaccine so you don't have a senior in your family get infected. Well, the Chinese published a massive study of over 10 million people in a major medical journal in the last few months about asymptomatic spread. And they basically have disproven asymptomatic spread. If you look at this viral illness carefully, it turns out that sick people give it to others, that you're communicable when you're sick. When you're completely asymptomatic, you don't spread the virus around to someone else. So that means all this screening that's going on, people are getting screening to get on airplanes or go to basketball games, what have you. That is a complete waste of time. If people just were perceptive about their symptoms, if they felt like they had a cold, they could have COVID and they should you know, stay away from people. But um, there's no such thing as asymptomatic spread. That, that has been a false narrative. It's being used to promote the vaccine among young people uh, one of the first uh, places where the vaccine was deployed was in young healthcare workers in the United States. There had been zero outbreaks among young healthcare workers, zero. And um, to vac and they, you know, there was vaccination and people holding up their vaccine cards and going on social media. It was almost to kind of make an example out of young people. And I, to me, that was just grotesque. Um, I think the vaccine, the mass vaccination, should have been a narrow band. Young people should have been excluded because they don't asymptomatically spread it to others. And, um, uh, and we should have gone about it in a much more uh, rational way. We definitely should not be vaccinating people who are not included in the clinical trials program. What's to be gained out of herd immunity? So let's just get into this a little bit. You mentioned the November 19th um, Senate testimony, and I was the lead witness uh, for the majority chairman on our early ambulatory treatment. And thank goodness, these two sets of hearings, November 19th and December 8th happened. Because in the last quarter of uh, 2020, there was a massive increase in early treatment of COVID-19. 
That allowed people to be treated at home. They didn't go outside the house in a panic to clinics and hospitals and contaminate more people. The virus ended in their houses. They were treated with four to six available drugs and they survived without hospitalization. That approach was so successful that it began to bring the end to the COVID-19 pandemic. I testified that we were on course to overrun the hospitals. Our breaking point was 135,000 hospitalizations in the United States, and we would have basically uh, overflowed the hospitals and everyone would have started dying because we simply wouldn't have enough resources. We crested at 128,000 individuals in the United States hospitalized, and then the hospitals started clearing out. In fact, the hospitals started clearing out before the first person was fully vaccinated. So it was clear that mass vaccination uh, was gonna have very little impact on herd immunity. And now there are calculations for herd immunity and they're pretty simple. Uh, they assume that 15% of the population just can't get the virus, that they're naturally immune due to cross immunity from other coronaviruses and that's pretty solid. So 15% are not susceptible. You take the patients who've had COVID and use the CDC multiplier of six, you can actually get to a number who have natural immunity. So natural immunity plus not susceptible to begin with gives you the percent herd immunity. And that percent herd immunity is a very useful number to understand because once there is a sufficient number of people where the virus simply just can't attack anymore, that um, uh, the virus simply isn't gonna spread. So this calculation was done uh, recently and it's been out on social media. So let me just read a couple for the listeners. North Dakota, 93% herd immunity. So it's gonna be impossible to have another spike of COVID in North Dakota. South Dakota, 90%, Iowa, 78%, Nebraska, 76%, Kansas, 75%, Wisconsin, 72%, uh, Idaho, 71%. Now there'll be a few cases here and there, but by and large, the virus has got nowhere to go. So um, as herd immunity shades in across America, um, and keep in mind, there's way more people getting COVID than people getting vaccinated, that the natural immunity is gonna have a much bigger effect than vaccine immunity. It's not that the vaccine won't do anything, hopefully it'll help somebody somewhere, but it's certainly not gonna save America. And when we turn on the, the news every night, the typical story is it's a race against time. Uh, we have to vaccinate people before the, the mutant variants come. Well, in fact, if there's any concern about mutant forms or variants, it's going to be in those vaccinated. Remember I said those with natural immunity, they don't get the variant effects, but it's very possible that a variant could evade vaccine immunity, which is not complete and not durable, and the patients could get COVID-19 despite getting the vaccine. So uh, we really have, uh, the media has done a giant disservice throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. There's been a complete uh, block of information on early treatment. There's been no access through the media for clinical trials or research, no fair basis of information. Um, uh, it's been, media has been absolutely terrible on this. They blame the victim uh, uh, with showing some bad news, blame the victim for not wearing masks, not social distancing, and then scaring them with fear mongering into mass vaccination. Uh, many have said it's a crime against humanity and that historians are going to be very unkind to the stakeholders uh, who have promoted ma mass vaccination uh, uh, to the uh, uh, detriment of not providing early treatment, not being strategic, um, piling on vaccine-related deaths with no attention to them and, uh, and keep plodding along in this, in this plot, if you will, a max, vaccina max vaccination plot. 
Well, I, I think I think you're absolutely right, and it's it's really quite alarming because even with the people that I've been talking with in my practice, who tend to be pretty well-educated people who want to do their best to take charge of their health, because my work has been in preventive medicine, so they're interested in that. And the fa- the way in which even that group of people focused on preventive medicine have been so misled about what the vaccine can and can't do, what vaccines in general do, but especially this new one. They think that they're going to protect others around them. They think that they're going to be protected from getting COVID. And they don't realize that exactly the points that you were just making. And they don't realize that maybe they've been exposed and may have immunity but no one is suggesting that they get an antibody test before they get a vaccine or if they've had COVID. I, I have one of my patients who has a very serious autoimmune disorder and her rheumatologist told her that she should stop her medication for that autoimmune disorder, rheumatoid arthritis, stop the medication so that it won't block the vaccine response and then she should get the vaccine. And, and I'm thinking, this doesn't make any sense. Why would we, and she had COVID, that's, that's the worst part of it. So here she's had COVID, she already has an overactive immune response that has been damaging to the body except for the medication she's been on that has stabilized her. And now they're talking about stopping the medicine and getting the vaccine and triggering the same type of intense reaction that she had with COVID when she was quite ill. This doesn't make any medical sense. It's, it's very fair to say that a doctor's order or a doctor's permission um, should be sought before the vaccine is undertaken. And um, at least at that level uh, of advice, Um, One of the problems is, and I'm looking at the news release right now, December 10th, 2020, the Trusted News Initiative partners, which was BBC, CNN, Fox, all the major networks, the Trusted News Initiative will continue to work together to ensure legitimate concerns about future vaccinations are heard whilst harmful disinformation myths are stopped in their tracks, end quotes. Tim Davey is the director general. It's on the internet. This is basically an overt censorship program. And uh, there's been some famous vaccine deaths. One of them is Hank Aaron. So on Hank Aaron on January 6th received the COVID vaccine. He felt so good. He gave a press release on it and his wife got it and everything was terrific. He felt great. And then on January 17th, he's dead. And so on January 6th, press release, he gets the vaccine January 17th is his death and all the eulogies, no mention on January 17th that he just got the vaccine on January 6th. You'd actually just have to find those two separate listings uh, on the internet. Another one is Larry King. And the uh, story is quite confused that Larry King either got the vaccine or he had COVID or both or, or vaccinating on top of COVID. But in fact, he, he died in a COVID associated uh, illness with the vaccine. And as I've mentioned, at least eight 110 people 
have reported to the CDC that someone's died associated with the vaccine. I mean, 810 worldwide, it's over a thousand. This is, to me, it's stunning that people are consenting to get a voluntary vaccination and that some are, are dying of it. And there's no mention of this on the news. And the, the government is grossly, government, government agents are grossly irresponsible in my view for promoting the vaccine without any efforts to review these cases, risk mitigation, et cetera. It's stunning. Well, we get to. it is stunning. And one of the things I was shocked to see that our local Safeway is going to start doing COVID vaccines in the Safeway grocery store. And when we start talking about the risk, and I've read the risk, I've read the adverse events, and I am familiar because you're helping all of us stay on top of this in the coalition of our team. That, that the death rate is quite high and the anaphylactic reaction risk is high with the PEG containing vaccines. And yet here we are, they want to just have the mass vaccination in the grocery store. Now, who is going to advise the patients about their risk? Who is going to monitor them? I, I just find this incredible. It's, um, uh, yeah, I've uh, mentioned this before. I think that we're off the rails here. We're not following any of the regulatory uh, science. Uh, the, the CVS and Walgreens were advertising for the vaccine uh, in October, November before the products were even available. That violates uh, multiple laws about truth and advertising, US Drug and Cosmetic Act. Um, the short cutting of the uh, safety and observation period to two months and the mistake the, the mistake the trials did is they could have allowed people to stay in their randomized group and give follow-up information because the rates were of, of, of COVID were so low, less than 1%. But what they did, Pfizer and Moderna did, is as soon as they announced the uh, EUA approval, they offered everybody in the placebo group a chance to get the vaccine. So we'll, we, now we have no ability to discern um, who's who in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of vaccine, uh, vaccine safety and durability. So we have no information on uh, the duration of infection. So people have asked some questions. Okay, if I get the vaccine, what can I do? Can I visit my grandparents? Well, we don't know because you still can get COVID when you get the vaccine. Can I stop wearing a mask? No, you have to wear a mask. Um, you know, can I, is, is, there any, is there any change in my life when I get the vaccine? Not really. Um, what about uh, the certainty of how long I'm protected? Zero information. What we're hearing from the media now is, um, hang on, uh, there, are, uh, there are so many variants. There's a concern that the vaccine is not complete. And in fact, now there needs to be a booster. So the vaccine manufacturers are already saying, wait, listen, this is the gift that keeps uh, giving that before you know it, now we're going to have to get a booster. So while, while we hear a false uh, agenda um, regarding um, interpretation of these variants and mutants, at the same time, we're hearing that we need a, um, uh, a, a booster. So what is it? Are, are the vaccines protective against the, the mutants? Then if they are, then why do they need a booster? And so, you know, I think common sense would tell you the vaccine is nothing like the natural immunity, that it, it, in many ways, when a young person gets COVID, it's a blessing because they're going to get through the infection and have natural immunity. I now have patients where the entire families have had COVID and say, listen, it's a blessing. You can get together. It's over with. You're, you don't have to worry. 
Um, and uh, I think patients who are COVID recovered, I think they ought to be proud of it. They should mention, you get into an Uber car, tell them, listen, I'm COVID recovered. I'm good. I can't get the illness and I can't give it. And uh, there's, no, there's no credit for COVID recovered. Here, here's an example. At the Super Bowl in Tampa, they announced that they would give free tickets to 100 uh, healthcare workers that were vaccinated for COVID. They let them in the stadium. I was saying that is a travesty. Why don't they fill the stadium with COVID recovered people? They suffered with this illness. They had a life-threatening illness. They survived. They can't give the virus. They can't receive the virus. Why don't they fill it up with 80,000 cheering COVID recovered people? They could have made a fortune on sessions and sweatshirts and Coca-Cola and everything else. Um, You know, our country and the media and the government agencies in the way they're handling this and the way they're viewing it uh, is absolutely terrible. And we have missed opportunity after missed opportunity over and over again. I just thank you for summarizing that so eloquently and powerfully. And you're exactly right. We really need to get back to the basics. We need to get back to patients discussing their healthcare needs with their personal physician. We need to get back to being able to discuss these issues without them being politicized. And you have given such a hopeful message about the COVID recovered patients. And I'd like to just re-emphasize that we've all been working on with your leadership and others, the early home-based treatment for COVID available in a patient guide free on the internet, www.covidpatientguide.com and learn about your options. So you don't have to live in fear of getting COVID and you don't have to take the risk of an experimental vaccine if you have health conditions or concerns, then you have the option of early treatment. Dr. McCullough, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today on Voice of a Nation. And I, I want to urge all of you, get involved, get loud, and don't be afraid to speak out to make the world around you a better place. Thank you for being with us. This is Dr. Lee for America signing off.